Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Unspoken Truths, a public forum on the murder of George Floyd, race relations, and our journey toward equity. My name is Joelle Murchison, and I am the principal and founder of Exec Mommy Group and an adjunct faculty member at the Yukon School of Business. I am here representing a collective of organizations that since last fall gathered around the wonderful writings that brought us to the 1619 Project. And with the incidents that have recently occurred, we thought that it would be important to come back together, to have an opportunity to begin to discuss some unspoken and unrealized truths in our community that have become much more in the forefront as a result of the horrific incident murder of George Floyd last month. This evening, I'm really pleased to uh, be surrounded by fantastic panelists who will have an opportunity to share with you as well as to um, take your questions as we move through the evening. I would be remiss if I did not thank all of the sponsors of this wonderful forum. So please bear with me because there are many of them and I do not want to leave anyone out. Um, someone asked the question, do all of, are all of the participants muted and not visible? That is correct. This is being run as a webinar. So um, I will give you the logistics around how we'll participate in just a moment um, once I have thanked all of our sponsors. So first to Charter Oak Cultural Center, um, we give huge thanks to Donna Berman for gathering all of us together for this important moment. To Nishama Benai Takol Shalom, Yukon Hartford, Connecticut Mirror, who has graciously provided the mechanism for us to come to you this evening, EMG, the YWCA of the Hartford region, the Amistad Center for Art and Culture, Heartbeat Ensemble, the United State of Women, the Mark Twain House and Museum, Harriet Beecher Stowe Center, and the Thomas J. Dodd Research Center at the University of Connecticut. Thank you all for being here this evening. So in terms of the logistics, we are running a Zoom webinar. And so you can see all of us who are panelists, you as the participants are able to engage on the chat. However, the chat function only comes to those of us who are panelists. Additionally, if you do have a question, please feel free to use the Q&A function located on the bottom of your screen. And I will read your question and share it with the panelists during our Q&A section. Okay. So as I mentioned, um, this group of organizations and individuals gathered last fall to begin a discussion around the 1619 Project a piece in the New York Magazine by Nicole Hannah-Jones that took us on a journey as we recognized 400 years from 1619, the date recognized essentially as when some of the first um, enslaved Africans arrived on the shores of what we now call the United States of America. And the important piece about that work is it took us through a number of systemic issues that have, in many instances, been supported uh, since the time of slavery. Um, they may not look as they did 400 years ago, but the systems that have been created have maintained a system of inequity that has disproportionately impacted Black people in this country. 
And so as the events began to unfold around the murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis last month, this group thought that it was important to come together to organize a series of discussions that would allow the public to engage in this discourse. There are many after George Floyd and more recently even within the last two weeks who have suffered and died at the hands of police and even individuals who consider themselves vigilantes, common citizens who have decided to take what they consider to be the law into their own hands. There is a long history of police brutality in communities of color. The impact physically, psychologically, emotionally, spiritually, financially, and all of those uh, categories has been debilitating to the black community. What we aim to do this evening is to shine a light on some of the impacts of those different systemic issues and begin to think about how we might suggest we can move towards some form of equity. I did not say solution because we all recognize that in one evening we will not be able to get to a solution. But is it important that we speak? It's important that we share our lived experiences and that we learn from what has gone before us. Because as the adage says, if you don't know your past, you won't know your future. And so with that, I will introduce to you the uh, phenomenal panelists that we have with us this evening. And once I complete the introductions, you will have an opportunity to hear from them. I'm going to introduce them in the order that they will speak to you. So first, we have Aisha Clark. Aisha, born in the city of Hartford and educated in Hartford and East Hartford schools, holds a master's degree in social work with a concentration in policy practice from the University of Connecticut School of Social Work, a master's degree in public health from Benedictine University, and a bachelor's degree in economics from the University of Connecticut. She is currently the vice president of operations at Compass Youth Collaborative. Mrs. Clark oversees Compass's three school-based youth development programs, as well as the Compass Peace Builders program. She additionally is an elected member of the Hartford Board of Education, where she serves as the board chair. Welcome, Aisha. Next, we will hear from Professor Jeffrey Oakbar. Jeffrey Oakbar is professor of history and the founding director of the Center for the Study of Popular Music. He is the author or editor of several books, including Black Power, Radical Politics and African-American Identity, Hip Hop Revolution, The Culture and Politics of Rap, and The Harlem Renaissance Revisited, Politics, Arts, and Letters. In 2018, he released Keywords for African-American Studies with co-editors Erica R. Edwards and Roderick A. Ferguson. Dr. Oakbar's articles appear in the Journal of Religious Thought, Journal of Black Studies, Souls, Centro, and Radical Society, among other academic publications. He has been invited to write for the New York Times, Room for Debate, and the Daily Beast, among other publications. Raised in Los Angeles, California, Ogbar received his BA in history from Morehouse College and his MA and PhD degrees in history from Indiana University. Welcome, Dr. Ogbar. Our next panelist is Danessa Colley. Colley or Coley, Danessa, please tell me. Colley, you're right. Colley, okay. Danessa is a rising junior at Brown University, my alma mater, so there's a little bit of bias here. Uh, 
where she studies health and human biology with a focus on the social context of health and disease. Outside of class, she has spent two years as an executive leader of the Brown University Black Student Union and also serves as a women's peer counselor in the residential halls. Prior to attending Brown, she was born and raised in Connecticut, where she was a member of Heart for Youth Scholars and attended Choate Rosemary Hall. Welcome, Danessa. Last but certainly not least, Godfrey L. Simmons Jr. Godfrey is the new artistic director of Heartbeat Ensemble, a community-based theater in Hartford, Connecticut. He is also co-founder of Civic Ensemble, a community-based theater in Ithaca, New York. For Civic, he directed Eugene O'Neill's All God's Chillin' Got Wings, The Next Storm, and Baldwin versus Buckley, The Faith of Our Fathers, and appeared in Judy Tate's Fast Blood and Athol Fugard's My Children, My Africa. Godfrey was producing artists for Off-Broadway's epic theater ensemble, appearing in A More Perfect Union, Widower's Houses, which Godfrey co-adapted with Ron Russell, and Measure for Measure, among other plays. At Epic, he also co-wrote and starred in a documentary play about the election of President Barack Obama, Dispatches from a Mended America. His radio show, The Griot Hour, appeared from 2015 to 2019 on the Ithaca, New York community radio station, WRFI, where he has just begun co-hosting the Black Lives Matter Forum. Godfrey is a 2012 TGC Fox Fellow and a lifetime member of Ensemble Studio Theater. Welcome to Hartford Godfrey. Welcome to all of our panelists. And we will begin this evening with Ms. Aisha Clark. Good evening, everyone. Um, and thank you for the opportunity to have this platform in order to express um, what's going on right now um, with the tragedy that we've seen. Um, so for me, um, I will say that um, my belief on the reasoning why there has been a, a movement that's going on right now, um, and not just a moment, is because of everyone being restricted. And so what I mean by that is COVID has been a time where everyone had to be in their own homes and pay a little attention than before. This um, evidence of police brutality has been happening from God knows when. It hasn't happened forever. However, when everyone is now being um, in a position to look and pay attention. We're now more engaged in our social media than ever before. We're now paying, paying attention to the news to get updates and statistics. People are now paying attention and there's nowhere to go. There is nowhere to turn. There is nowhere in which people can now go and bring their children to soccer practice. There's no way for now for people to go to the grocery store and not pay attention. This, right, this incident right now was in everyone's face. And so for me, it challenged everyone to either speak up or say nothing. And so for me, this is why I feel that there is a change and why there is now an awakening, as most would call it, and the movement has started. And I do want to say that most people are stating, oh, over time, this will stop. But I do believe that this is a town now where people are standing up and binding together and standing together in order to make a movement happen. Thank you so much, Aisha. I appreciate your perspective. And it will be interested to hear you talk a little bit about the impact on education as we move through the program this evening. Absolutely. Thank you. Next, Dr. Okbar. So uh, first, it's an absolute pleasure to be here. Thank you very much for the introduction, Joelle, and uh, the invitation um, at large. 
I want you to just give a, a quick historical overview, given my expertise, and provide some context for what we see here. Many people around the table, many people who are, who are tuned in, have a general sense that police brutality isn't anything new. Um, Will Smith said, and it's been cited many times, that racism isn't new, it's just being filmed. But actually, we have uh, every permutation of Black political engagement across ideology has been very explicit about the horrors of police brutality in Black communities. And it's interesting that even the most moderate organizations in the civil rights movement, like the National Urban League and the NAACP, were very conspicuous about uh, and the, the call for police reform, for justice, for uh, ending the terror that Black people experience at the hands of the police. And if you, any of us name our favorite African-American historical figure, he or she is on record having confrontations with the police. Uh, whether we talk about someone like, uh, you know, Frederick Douglass or um, Harriet Tubman, who by definition, they were outlaws because they freed themselves from slavery and the law was actually after them to re-enslave them all the way up to iconic figures uh, like Du Bois and Garvey, who was arrested and put in prison. Uh, the police spied on Du Bois, W.E.B. Du Bois, of course, the uh, African-American historian and uh, co-founder to the NAACP. And in fact, when we, even when we think about the founding of the NAACP itself, in 1906, three years before that, the precursors to the NAACP, the Niagara Movement, in their statement early on, as they were organizing their thoughts and political projections, they argued that uh, the, they, they, they use the term mass incarceration or prison industrial complex, but the exact words uh, addressed what we now know as uh, those phenomena. Say, quote, uh, we are not more lawless than the white race. We are, however, more arrested, more convicted, more mobbed. We want justice, even for criminals and outlaws. And so it's kind of remarkable that if we uh, you know, look at the arc of African-American political struggle over centuries, uh, the police have always been really on the front line of maintaining a system of federal, state, local levels to marginalize, oppress, and in many ways denigrate black people. So there's always been a constant form of resistance, which itself has taken many forms. And ultimately, when we think about perhaps the highest, most radical form of dealing with police brutality, I guess the apogee would have been in the late 1960s with the Black Panther Party. And its founding in 1966 is explicitly, we will police the police. Uh, what do you do when police are criminals and they're antagonizing or threatening to kill you? So the Panthers took upon themselves to get law books, cameras, shotguns, handguns, rifles, follow the law and do exactly that, police the police. And of course, laws were amended to prevent that in California when they decided to do that. In May of 1967, they actually changed the state law so they could prevent the police from being police. So when we look at the, the art of, of uh, African-American history and we come up to what happened on May 25th, we see that this is a culmination and so the outrage that many people have is uh, not just the sort of three murders that happened in succession in the spring, but the culmination of all the things we've seen in the last few years, going back to Trayvon Martin, uh, perhaps even before that with Genesis 6. We keep going back to Amu Diallo in 1999, but we also have this sort of collective memory of this institutionally, we have a memory going back uh, well over 100 years. So that provides some historical context to where we are. Thank you so much, um, much appreciated. And there's already a question about um, the connection of, uh, or the themes in early rap music around police brutality. So we'll hold on to that for when we come back. Um, next up, Danessa. 
Good evening, everyone. I just really wanted to say thank you not only for creating this platform, but also for giving me the opportunity to share the perspective of the younger generation um, and the way we've been finding ways to involve ourselves in this fight without the same financial resources as those who are older than us. Um, and on that note, actually, one thing that I really wanted to touch on that I think has been especially novel in this wave of the Black Lives Matter movement has been the usage of social media by my generation, Gen Z, um, to really create a platform to, I would say, emp empower the powerless and give voice to the voiceless. And what I mean by that is to use the social media that's really targeted at our age group. So I'm talking about TikTok and YouTube and all the social media that my generation definitely gets a lot of credit for using, but also sometimes faces criticism for to not only monetize this movement, but also to spread education. And um, some concrete examples I really wanna give of that are, for example, what we've seen on YouTube with the creation of these Black Lives Matter videos that are basically just very long three to four hour videos filled with tons of ads that you can stream with your ad blocker turned off and be donating resources to various organizations. So for individuals who may not be employed, who may be low income, or who may just be full-time college students who don't have the resources to donate in the ways they want to, they've been able to get involved in this fight. Um, another example that you guys might be a bit more aware of has been the TikTok trick on the recent Trump rally on Juneteenth in, in um, Tulsa, Oklahoma, where it kind of became a fad or a joke on TikTok for many younger students to reserve seats and then not show up to the rally. And what this really did was show that without the ability to vote, without being 18, without being anywhere near this rally, people were able to stage a peaceful protest. And we were able to use this social media that is designed, yes, for happiness, yes, for jokes, to really flip the narrative and force individuals who might just be logging on to scroll aimlessly, to be aware of what's going on, and to also see that individuals who may not have the ability to go vote in November have a strong opinion and want their voice to be heard. Um, and I think that's really phenomenal. I think not only has that allowed us to spread education in individuals who may be immunocompromised and may be struggling to get out right now into the streets and actually protest, what it also has done is give us the ability to spread this education to individuals who may live in households where the thought is very different and where these conversations aren't happening around the dinner table. People can DM you and just engage in these conversations that they might not have anyone else to go to for. So I think for my generation especially, social media, we've been getting a, a lot of criticism for being stuck on our phones right now in quarantine. But I've seen the platform really be used to kind of not only educate, but empower. And I really, really think that that is something that's affecting why so many more individuals are getting involved right now. Thank you so much, Danessa. Your perspective is really powerful um, as we think about this movement and how different it is from previous movements and how it really has amplified um, many, many of us. Thank you. Godfrey. Uh, thanks for having me. Um, my, uh, my practice is uh, around um, telling stories, and so I'm, I'm I'm, uh, I'm gonna, I guess, lead with that, uh, lead with what you know, right? Um, so about a week ago, um, a little over a week ago, I was, um, I was driving um, from Ithaca 
to uh, Hartford, um, and I'm in the process of moving. moving. Um, and so I spent most of the coronavirus kind of, you know, uh, period in Ithaca with my family who was still there. And so I'm driving, um, and, uh, and I, I'm, I'm taking my life in my hands. Now there's a taking of life in my hands because I just, anybody drives a car, you know, that's what you do, right? It's just, there's some risks involved there. Of course, my risk goes up because I'm a black man who's driving. And I'm hyper aware of that, that that is, that is, that I increase in anxiety, but I manage it. I kind of like keep it together. I manage it. All right, I'm kind of, I'm all right. So I'm in the car and I'm taking the deep breaths and I'm making sure that I'm going the speed limit. I might go over just a little bit. I make sure I'm with the traffic. I don't go too fast. Um, don't have to worry about that in Connecticut because everybody travels at 85 miles an hour. But so you just kind of keep, keep going with the traffic and it's okay. And I, and I keep, I keep thinking about this moment when I was a teenager, I'm 19, and I'm driving from uh, Williamsburg, Virginia to Goldsboro, North Carolina. And I'm driving because my mom has passed away and I've got to go down and kind of take care of everything. And, and when I, as, as, I, and as I'm, I'm thinking about this, right, I'm 53 years old now, I'm talking 34 years ago, I'm thinking about this, and I'm thinking about how when I'm driving over the James River and I drive over the, 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 the state line through the boroughs, the Murphy boroughs, all the boroughs, tar boroughs, all the boroughs in North Carolina to, to Greensboro to get to the Goldsboro, and, uh, and then I have a crying jack because uh, my mom died, right? And, uh, and I know I'm gonna have to do a lot of this myself. My father was not well at that time. And so I was gonna be kind of on my own in terms of my nuclear family. And so I'm kind of, you know, weaving a little bit. Like the crying jack gets really bad. And I get, uh, I get stopped by a cop and he, you know, uh, he says, sir, you were kind of, you seemed a little, are you, is everything okay? Uh, you know, drivers, you know, license registration. I said, my mom died. And uh, he said, I'm sorry to hear that. And he went to run, went to run the stuff and he comes back and uh, he says, I'm sorry about your mom, sir. Um, so uh, I'm going to let you off with a warning. Um, but I'm gonna tell you something, try to get it together because them boys down the road don't play. And I just thought, what? He, uh, why? Like, why would he do that? Why would he say that? Why, why would he do that? You know, I, this was this amazing interaction, this moment of like, humanity, this moment for acknowledging all, all, like all of that, right? And then, I'm, and, then I, and then I start thinking about George Floyd's mama. And I start thinking about what was he thinking when he said mama? 
And I'm thinking, what, what was he thinking? And then I, see, then I go backward and I keep going back. Like, what was he thinking when his head hit the pavement? Like, what was he thinking? Okay, I just need to kind of just calm down while this is going on, but it's gonna be okay because they're not supposed to do this. And then what happened when, his, when the knee went on his neck? And he said, I can't breathe. Like, I wonder if he was thinking, oh, he just doesn't know that's what's happening. Let me let him know, because that's what human beings do for each other. Let me let him know that, his, that he's hurting me. And then he'll stop, because that's what people do. And so he does it. He says, I can't breathe. I can't breathe. I, I, I can't breathe. Did George Floyd know? Did he know that if he just called for his mama, that something would happen? Because let's be clear, all those white people who are out in the streets wouldn't be out there unless George Floyd calls for his mama. Because now he is human. We are human. Finally. And then I get it together. I stop gripping the handles of the, the steering wheel quite so hard. The knuckles are only blue. Um, and I make it home. My new home. Hartford. Brother Godfrey, thank you. I think it's taking many of us a moment to take in the pain and the real physical impact of the harm that has been done to our communities. Um, we just need a moment. And I thank you for sharing your gift with us and telling our story in a way that acknowledges our humanity. And that, my friends, is what we are here to talk about, our humanity. We, as a people, as a nation, as I've said a number of times this week, are just beginning to acknowledge our Achilles heel. The most sensitive, difficult to repair, oftentimes, muscle in our collective national body. Racism, the Achilles heel of this country. I feel in my stomach the pain that our people are experiencing and expressing as we are out in the streets. And we have to find a way by connecting our history and certainly our future 
to move beyond, to rehab this Achilles heel, this injury that just has not gone away, um, that has paralyzed and immobilized a nation that could maybe, maybe one day be great, <laughs> maybe, once we begin to examine this injury. And so with that, I'm going to move to, and because of, I think, the, the nature of the interaction with police, I would imagine that many of us have had similar interactions where the moment you see those lights in your rear view, that feeling in your stomach, the tensing of your body, the trying to remember all the things that you were told about what to do when you're stopped and the inability to know what will happen next. Dr. Obar, can you talk to us a little bit about the history of police brutality towards African-Americans? This that we speak of, the story that, that Godfrey tells is so deep and intense to all of us and yet has plagued us for a very long time. Can you speak to how we've arrived here and maybe give us some insight on the history of policing in particular as it relates to African-Americans? I think that Godfrey's story is very powerful in the narrative, of course, will resonate with so many people here. I think that when one looks at any system anywhere that you have a an element to from the state to met out uh, violence as a control and the threat of violence as an element of control to maintain domination. So whether we're talking about ancient empires subjugating you know, weaker states, that uh, the threat of violence is always there. The actual application of it, uh, the threat of a very basic principle about maintaining power and domination over another. And so when we think about the utility of the violence and its, uh, its constant sort of presence as a uh, system of control is institutionalized over time in different ways in different spaces, but pretty much uh, omnipresent. And so when we think about the, the emergence of a, a police state and a militia, there, there's part of a social contract that in the West, that there be a, an, an order, uh, so law, set of laws and codes that people ad adhere but also there are other expectations and unwritten laws in some cases where uh, one might have, one might be a citizen, but one might be uh, a, a, a super citizen while others are just mere citizens, right? And then there are people who are subordinate. So we might have hierarchies within that notion of citizenship and policing or the utility of the, the ability of the state to net out uh, violence as a means of control, of course, to be part of that. So we think about the United States and, and how policing emerges. So, you know, early on, there, there's a, a myth that floats has been floating around that, you know, policing comes out of slavery, which is not the case. There are societies all around the world that never have slavery, not in the last 200 years having slavery, but have police departments and police departments, uh, you know, existed, you know, uh, outside of states that were just slave states. But anyone who was trying to escape from slavery has to deal with the law since it was, you know, again, a violation of law and the police were there to, to uh, control people. But even black folks who were not enslaved uh, had to force carry papers all the time to prove that they were not enslaved. And there were white people in the South who were not even 
law enforcement officers who had the power, who were deputized by their social contract to stop any black person at any time to demand papers. And so what I think in many ways when we see these stories of Karens or these random white people calling the police on a little girl selling water or you know someone barbecuing in a park or someone here in, West, in the West End, you know, cleaning snow in their front yard. In that case, they didn't call the police. Police just showed up and was arguing that in the end. But in these cases where you have civilians rolling up in Central Park or other places and calling the police and demanding papers or demanding identification and that sort of thing, in many ways, whether they're aware of it or not, there's a long history that goes back that many of us, of course, are aware of. So. So when we think about policing, we think about, we have to kind of keep in mind that there's a relationship between civilians uh, and the police and blackness and these civilians being white or black, right? It's a, so old, so in many ways, as ancient as the United States is, 200, 300, some odd years, you think about the colonial period. But if I, if I want to just quickly say, uh, I have a couple of little dates here that I wrote down and I thought these were sort of useful. So I talk about how policing had been an intrinsic part to black political engagement regardless of ideology. So in um, the Montgomery Bus Boycott, all of us are familiar with that, started in December of 1955. And Dr. King was 26 years old, very young guy, was not trying to be a leader and they plotted and pushed him and reluctantly he decided to do this. And uh, the very next month, he's volunteering to carry people who are boycotters uh, home in his car. And the police roll up, and this is the date I have here, January 26, 1956. And the police say they announced, now the car king, uh, you're under arrest for speeding, with a 30 and a 25. And so they, they arrest Dr. King here. But in this case, we look at the punitive arm of the state, right, as a means of control and domination. In no uncertain terms, they make it very clear and communicate to him that they have the power to disrupt his life in horrible ways, uh, up into killing him if they wanted to, right? Or torturing a, or you know, jail, or just giving him heavy fines and just a simple arrest. I wanna jump up quickly to uh, 1962 and one of the most famous speeches that Malcolm X had, who's in many ways, ideologically anathema to Dr. King. In 1962, a number of Muslims were shot and one killed in LA. Uh, LAPD, came and attacked some Muslims who were carrying clothes from the cleaners. They accused them of stealing these clothes and they commenced to beat them and pulled out guns and shot multiple uh, Muslims. And Malcolm X flew out to Los Angeles, my hometown, and he made this comment. He said, made this famous speech on the pill. He said that, uh, you know, black people aren't uh, beaten by the police because they're Methodists or Episcopalians or Catholics. Uh, they're not, you know, beaten because they have this accent or that accent or this last name or that last name or because they're Democrats or Republicans or race is a common denominator. He was very clear about that. He talked about it in very explicit ways and the demand for some sort of uh, redress there. And then of course, in 1963, at the March on Washington, one year later, at this march, you know, King makes this reference to the victims of unspeakable horrors of police brutality. And so, so when we think about iconic figures, I just want to draw attention again to this, but also keep in mind that states that were so inextricably com committed to racial subjugation and white supremacy that you take a state like Georgia, you take a city like Atlanta, and everyone talks about how Atlanta is a black mecca and black people are balling out and enjoying Atlanta right now. And Atlanta was known as a city too busy to hate. But in the city of Atlanta, there were no black cops in its history from its founding in 1847 up. So finally, 100 years after its founding, after a lot of protests, the, the white mayor of Atlanta said, we will give you guys some black cops. 
1948, Atlanta created this first collection of black cops, nine officers. These officers could not change in the police precinct. They could not have a locker in the police precinct. They had to go to the YMCA. They could only police black people. And if they saw a white person committing a crime, even if that white person was brutalizing another white person, they had to call the police. They had no power to even arrest a white person committing a violent act against a white person, right? And so it was until 1962, the same year that this happened in Los Angeles, and a year before the March on Washington, that Atlanta cops who were black even had the authority to arrest white suspects. And so when we think about policing, you cannot extricate it from a system of white supremacy and racial segregation that's endemic. And in so many ways, we're talking about hundreds of years of this sort of uh, um, endemic practice. So it's quite remarkable that in many ways, I think that you know, we have you know, heads of police departments across the country who are black, but they're dealing with a culture that is, of course, still tied to a wider American culture. And the last thing I'll say about this is that while you can clearly can find racial bias in policing, policing is still, the you know, institution of policing is still part of the United States. So whether we're talking about academia, corporate America, media, Hollywood, or sports, every single study in all these spaces has always found racial bias. These other places, these, their colleagues in different spaces, however, don't have the lethal authority to just kill someone, right? And that's the sort of unique thing here. We have a bias in all these spaces. But the police are really unique in that that bias can actually lead to death in the most immediate way in which we can't, we, we don't have in the same uh, space. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Moving from that point, let's talk a little bit about trauma. Um, and you know, clearly, the the fact that we to you know to the point that you made about you know racism is now being filmed, um, that all of us regardless of whether we're in that city or on that street at that moment, have been subject to um, experiencing the trauma of these significant murders that we are watching, whether it is um, on Facebook Live, which was the case with Philando Castile, whether it is um, on videos that are shared on social media, um, to Danessa's point. Aisha, can you talk to us a little bit about the impact of trauma on um, Black bodies? I know you work specifically with young people and the, the Compass Peace Builders piece, but can you talk a little bit about that and how that can be persistent um, in the context of you know, how the Black community responds in these times? So um, I'll actually share my own personal experience and then I'll, I'll go into how it translates. So for me, I will, when I was working at a different organization, when all of the um, uprising was happening at Ferguson, I was sitting at my desk and I felt that I could not do anything. I didn't feel empowered to do anything. I, I sat back. But I also went through an experience of my own where a police officer, I was going to um, an event to celebrate someone's wedding, um, wedding announcement. And um, it was kind of like a club. And a police officer basically told me that I couldn't get in. And I thought he was joking. He was a white officer. I thought he was joking. And so he proceeded to say, no, you can't go come in. The owner of this space basically just said, don't worry about him. He's having a bad day. Come in through the other entrance. The police officer ran and proceeded to arrest me, handcuffed me in the, in the space and basically stated, you black bees don't know. You uneducated black bees do not know when you're not welcome. So at that point, I just stood there. 
And I chuckled and I said, wow, didn't realize I was uneducated. And so then he proceeds to state, um, yeah, you guys think that you can do whatever. You don't, you're swearing in this. And I said, wow, not one time have I swore at you. And I proceeded to state, like, let's go downtown. Let's go see your superiors. And so then he stated, oh, well, I work for the state. And I was like, well, I do too. And so then his whole language started to shift and change. And so I fast forward, at that time, he ended up letting me go, not necessarily apologizing, but wanting me not to, to write him up or report him. So I'm fast forwarding to the incidents that happen um, on social media and how it translates to own trauma. So for myself, when this last incident occurred, I thought back, wow, that could have been me at that time. That could have been me while I was saying, let's go downtown, let's do whatever. I could have been that person where someone could have recorded and others are out advocating in myself. So the trauma was there for myself. I think about our young kids and the things that they have to go through as they're thinking about their own lives. And so with my organization, as you stated, they see a lot of violence, one, within our city, but also violence that occurs on social media. So that vicarious trauma that occurs within them stays with them and they have a lot of hate and anger and they also don't know what to do with that. And so it takes some time with our own stigma of mental health, behavioral health or anything, where they don't know what to do with that anger. They then take it out on themselves and or they look at every single white person and feel like they are to blame. So what we try to do within our organization and also in the educational um, realm is do um, social emotional learning. And we really start to say, okay, think about what you're going through and don't allow your single story to display everything. And what a single story is, is don't allow one interaction that you've seen be the only interaction that you have with anyone that's involved. So the trauma that is occurring currently right now in our city and our states based on social media, it's opening up the eyes, but it's also, we also have to be able to provide an outlet for them to talk through it. I have two, two small young boys where they're now asking questions where they're saying, am I next? And they're eight and nine. And so I have to be able to give them an outlet to speak it through. So as, as um, Danessa stated that social media is now educating, we also have to have a platform for our young people to talk through their own emotions because it is causing a lot more trauma than we actually know. And we have to be able to have an outlet for them to express those things. Godfrey, it sounds like this is a perfect lead in to I was muted. God, <laughs> what I was saying was, Godfrey, this sounds like the perfect lead-in to the work that um, you're doing at Heartbeat and potentially the work um, that you did prior to coming to Hartford in terms of providing a way for, um, for all people, not just young people, but certainly our young people to find an outlet, a, a method to, um, to deal, to cope. Um, to express their their challenges, did you want to weigh in there? Yeah, no, I mean it's it's it the you know I started with the story mostly be you know the, it, it is part of my practice, but I think it's also a part of what's important to remember about this moment is the storytelling and the creativity that's around um activism and it's around these movements and it's a thing i think that we can forget and i think it's a thing that that sometimes can be forgotten i think sometimes by activists it's a thing to, that that the, like what's the story around what you know what's happening and you know 
if you think about the 60s and the 50s and the 40s and all the lead up into what they were doing, they were so deeply aware of the storytelling um, uh, aspects of this and um, on different levels. Um, yeah, I, it, it is something, one of the ways in which Heartbeat Ensemble is starting to pivot toward is, is really using stories to begin to kind of like unlock and examine anti, you know, how to be, you know, anti-racist and kind of like really moving in that, in that direction. Um, you know, one of our, one of our, uh, uh, one of the things that we're, we've been doing is providing a space for um, artists, activists, and students um, to just uh, to like heal and to uh, practice, right? To just kind of be with each other, to kind of like to take off the the armor, that everyday armor, and to just kind of be with each other. It's a it's a black, indigenous, um, people of color space that is that is centered around that population, but particularly for students, uh, sometimes they just need to talk. Like, and I, and I mean that deeply, just in, in, that, sim, in, the, in that simplest form. Um, and they need to know that, older, that people who are older than them are listening, right? And that they are colleagues. They're, they aren't kind of like, you know, just people that we're like talking down to, but that they're colleagues. Right. That's what's so fascinating about what's happening now is that is that it's always been the case because we forget how young is Dr. Arbar said. I mean, like we forget how young Dr. King was. We forget how young these women and men who were leading um, the charge. They were so young. They were so young. They were in their twenties, right? Some of them were like barely out of their teens. Fred Hampton. Fred Hampton, I mean, he was barely out of, he was barely out of childhood. And so I think, you know, yeah, I mean, I think that, it, it, that that's gonna be a, a way in which Heartbeat is interested in, you know, in kind of thinking about this. I also think though that there's some healing and some storytelling and story, that has to happen for people who are working as part of the dominant culture, uh, particularly in education. And I mean, not just white people, though white people make up most of, seem to make up most of what education is in Connecticut particularly. Um, there's a similar problem in New York State, um, except for New York City, uh, uh, but, um, but it's there. There are a lot of white folks who are kind of doing uh, the teaching, right? And even those who aren't like white, there's a kind of indoctrination in kind of a certain way of doing things. And so one of the things the heartbeat is interested in doing is 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 working with not students because they know what they're doing. They're fine. <laughs> it's like administrators and teachers. How do we kind of how do we kind of like engage them in that story and engage them in learning the stories of the students that they're affecting by their practice or the practices. And I think this is directly related to, to 
it's directly related to policing. Um, uh, and I know I've gotten a little bit off track here, but I think that providing that, uh, providing that cushion for students to tell their stories and to heal that trauma is really, really key. But it's difficult when it, you know, the people who are perpetrating it aren't kind of dealing with their trauma too. Yeah, thank you. It's interesting, and Danessa, I want to get you in here um, as I just reflected on the fact that as a child, you know, the expectation coming up in the community was that, particularly coming from the education system, there were dare officers, and there was this, you can go to the police officer to help you, you know, kind of thing, and how you know, disconnected that message is for many, many black and brown children. Um, and, and how that sort of impacts as you move into your adult years and having to have a whole separate set of rules for engagement as it relates to um, law enforcement. Danessa, I want to bring you in because you touched upon earlier the notion of, you know, this, this movement and that much of the movement is, as you know, we used to say, you know, this, the revolution will not be televised. The revolution is on social media. Uh, without a doubt. And so if you if you can jump in here and talk a little bit more about that, um, how you see, particularly, you know, to some of the points already made around the young people will lead them um, and what you're experiencing in this time. Yeah, I think that essentially social media for my generation in particular, I'm going to put this in perspective for you all. I made my Facebook page in fifth grade and I came home and my mom saw that I had friend requested her and she asked how I did it and I did it on the computer lab at my elementary school. So I say that to say that my generation, we, this is in our blood. It's how we understand the world. It's how we understand communication. It's how we understand making friends. It's how we understand dating. It's how we understand so much. But more importantly, we understand the social media companies just as much as they understand us. And we understand the money the immense amounts of money that are following behind different organizations from Instagram to Facebook. And we understand not only how to block that money, how to remove followers, remove views, when an influencer or someone on YouTube steps out of line or decides that they don't agree with the movement, it's really, really easy to pull your support, but we also understand how to redirect money to places where it can be used. And I think that moving forward, we're seeing this reimagining of social media. And when I say that social media stopped, at least in my perspective and what I see and who I follow is mostly younger individuals, I mean that it became commonplace to receive criticism for posting a selfie. And I'm 19 years old, like that's never happened before, you know? That is because we basically created this environment in which where if you weren't talking about Black Lives Matter, you shouldn't be talking. And I think a lot of people push back on that. A lot of people were really upset. A lot of people felt as if they should be able to thrive in their joy. And the best way I explain this to a lot of friends from my predominantly white high school that I attended who were frustrated with me when I was voicing why I was uncomfortable with them posting their, big, their beach um, pictures or their vacation was that I don't get to be happy right now. I don't get to go on social media and just relax from everything and look at pictures of people on a boat. I don't get to turn it off. When I go on social media, 
I'm seeing people reposting the videos of my people being killed. No trigger warning. No, this content may be violent. Nothing. I literally opened Instagram to the video of police shooting flare guns at protesters. And that stuff is just so deeply, deeply, deeply personal. So when I say that social media is the start of something new, I really mean that I'm seeing it used in a way that I never have in my life. And I had a Snapchat, an Instagram, a TikTok pretty much as soon as these apps were created. So what we're even seeing now that's one step further is we're seeing the executives at these apps being held accountable for their platforms. Twitter putting on those little messages on Donald Trump's posts when he's posting information that's not accurate about mail-in ballots potentially being used in the latter part of 2020 for this election, upcoming election. Twitter holding them accountable and speaking up and saying, hey, this isn't true, and putting a flag so that viewers can see that this information that's being dispersed, you need to fact check for yourself. These are things that didn't just happen overnight. We know that many of the executives at this company are some of the top donors to Donald Trump. What happened was pressure from your platform because at the end of the day, what we're seeing here is that money is the root of all evil. Money is the root of all good. Money is the root of everything. That's probably the main thing I've learned since coming into adulthood, since coming to college. And when when my generation has understood how money works for social media, we've taken the power. And I'm so excited to see how much can be, more can be done there. I'm so excited to see how much more other generations can contribute because they have better understandings of how finances work. They have more resources than we have. Many of us are college students or are working part-time jobs or just aren't yet at a place in our career where we have money to donate. But what I've really seen here is just something something that was supposedly created for fun and connection being flipped on its head and being used to expose just why people can't celebrate and bask in those positive emotions right now and why truthfully we've never been able to in the same way as our white counterparts. Why I've never had the same access to happiness and to carefreeness and to just freedom in existence. So I'm really, really excited to not only see where this goes, to not only see how much more we can do, but to hopefully see this be a permanent change. I've seen a lot of pressure continuously applied for this not to be a temporary thing. Um, and for a different social media platforms such as Netflix to keep like their Black Lives Matter collection going. So I'm really hoping that this is something that continues to grow, that continues to morph in more generations. And I'm even more excited for whatever we're gonna name the people who are after Gen Z, I don't know, we're out of letters, but for how they're gonna use social media because they've had iPads in their hands since they came out of the womb. So if my generation is doing this, imagine how they are gonna be able to use technology and imagine what they're gonna be able to do. Yeah, thank you. Um, you know, I mean, we cannot deny the power of social media. It just provides access to so many more people than would have, you know, necessarily in the past. Just um, a couple of questions have come in that are calling on our resident historian to sort of position us in the context of um, what's different about the movement today than say when we think about in the 1960s, the involvement of young people, um, you know, what is, what's the difference that you see in the protests today than we've seen in the past? And certainly, um, Jeff, you can weigh in, um, you know, and then others can follow.
Yeah, I'm actually very excited and, and um, heartened by what we've seen over the last you know, month or so. And it, when, I, when I say that, it's I'm, I'm heartened by not just the, the scope of what we see, that over 700 cities at its height, we have people and of course around the world simultaneously. This is unprecedented, but we also have a groundswell of people from all sorts of races involved. And in 1992, after Rodney King verdict, there was such rage and anger at the acquittal of the four officers. And this was taken out to the Simi Valley. And I think as stated earlier by uh, Aisha, that a lot of that anger at the police was sort of directed at white people at large. So in LA in 92, all sorts of non-black people in South Central at the epicenter of Florence and Normandy were being attacked. And you didn't see white people hanging out in South Central LA involving protests, like carrying signs or anything like that, right? They were being pulled out of cars and it looked very much like some of the rebellions from the 1960s where white civilians were being caught up as well and, and targeted by people. And right now when you see people uh, across the United States, I mean, not only do you see the, uh, the sort of passion and the zeal and the, uh, it seems like this visceral response to the inhumanity that we've seen exhibited with the murder of these people. But there seems to be a sort of um, a sensitivity that is not just measured by what we see on TV, but there have been polls that have come out and some fascinating polls in the last few days on how white Americans have shifted significantly on just the notion of Black Lives Matter since 2015. So in five years, it's gone from only a minority of them thought that it was a good thing. Most were hostile to Black, the slogan itself. Um, most, in fact, were hostile to the idea of Kaepernick taking a need to draw attention to police terror. Uh, and most whites were hostile to the demonstrations that happened with Eric Gardner and what happened in Ferguson with Mike Brown and others. And so we see this fundamental shift where over half of, slightly over half, of uh, white Americans actually polled saying that they endorse Black Lives Matter and not hostile to it. And uh, along local ideologies, every group except, every group had an increase. Uh, Republicans were only ones where the majority of that did not, in fact, uh, think Black Lives Matter was a good thing, but it was 39%, right? So I, I think that this is something different. The, the thing I think which is a critical difference between now and what we see in the 1960s is the absence of the hierarchical organizational leadership and titular leadership that we're used to. And uh, Ella Baker, who was who worked in different civil rights organizations over time and worked for the SCLC, she uh, advised the founders of SNCC, Student Violent Coordinating Committee, in 1960, to stay separate. But one of the things she she did that for a couple of reasons: one, to stay out of the pool of the more moderate leaning older people of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, although they were doing great work, she thought the militancy of young people and the hopefulness and the idealism and optimism of young people, that the fact that they had not been so jaded yet about the possibilities of activism, that she thought that was a good thing to keep separate, right? So that these people not only would do that, but she also, she also emphasized just toward democracy, this idea that, that local people on a grassroots level can determine what the conditions are, which of course vary. So, Camden, New Jersey does not look like Atlanta, which doesn't look like Seattle, which doesn't look like San Francisco or LA or Chicago. So we have these very different local dynamics that can be addressed by these local organizers, not a national organization sending out directives across the country, the titular leader meeting with the president or the governor. But you have a sort of elasticity with the movement, which I think is very powerful. And the last thing is that um, I was taking some notes earlier about all the legal changes and things that we've seen. 
And this is unprecedented again. Like we have, back in the late 19th century, to go back to Du Bois, Du Bois talked about the erection of these monuments to human traffickers and traitors to the United States. Like literally people who took up guns and killed hundreds of thousands of Americans who tried to destroy the United States. These people, after losing the war, people who engaged in you know, rape and literally you know, human trafficking, all sorts of terrible things, but they had all these monuments erected to these Confederate soldiers. And Du Bois talked about this. This was over, well over 100 years ago. And so people have been engaged and offended by the monuments of Confederacy for generations, decades, 100 years. And it was in the last month we've seen scores of them taken down. In, this, in the southern city of Jacksonville, Florida, one statue that was up since 1898 was removed. Now one single Confederate statue remains in Jacksonville, Florida. This is remarkable. I mean, and so when we think about these, not just the symbolic things, but the fact that you have chokeholds banned in cities across the United States, multiple cities, too, too many to list here, that you have the state of uh, Georgia for the first time actually enacting a state hate crime. This is Georgia, one of the few states that didn't have one. Uh, we have states that have um, immunity for police. Colorado just did that. So we actually have not just symbolic things like taking down Confederate monuments, but we also have substantive reforms. And I think that this is, uh, again, the sweeping response and legal response is unprecedented. We're talking about things that I've not seen this level of legal activity happen since the 1960s as at any point since the 1960s. So this, all this is very, very remarkable. Anyone else want to jump in there? We have a, a bunch of other questions, um, and, and I'd like to absolutely talk about the election. Um, but before we get there, um, there's a question around um, COVID-19. And I think it was alluded to, I heard someone say um, on social media earlier that they think that the protests are because people are bored and they have nothing to do. I thought that was really interesting um, and a very privileged response to, um, you know, centuries, generations of um, mistreatment. But as we think about the impact of COVID-19, as we know, disproportionately in uh, the Black community, how do we rationalize and navigate around that? Um, as we also begin to see um, the increase in protests. You know, there, there are some of us certainly who look at the protests and imagine that there couldn't possibly be social distancing, but yet are so moved to be out and on the streets to, to make some change. How do we navigate through um, the challenge of what I call this double pandemic, um, COVID-19 and racism? Um, I'll start if you don't mind, Joelle, just because I only can speak for myself. I can't speak for why everyone else is doing it. Um, I was the one who was in the house making sure that I'm washing my hands, keeping myself protected and my kids protected. However, during this time, I went out. And so I've gone to several protests where it was for me, um, I needed to kind of, I would risk my health um, because I wanted to see a change happen. And so for me, it was enough is enough and I can't be silent and I'll risk my health in order to see a reform or some action take place. And that is really what I believe some people are saying, um, especially those of my colleagues who have been out with me. Um, and also I, I know for me, 
when it comes to being out there, I want to help, um, one, encourage young people, because most of the folks that I've gone to have been um, run and supported, I mean, have been run by our young people. So all under the age of 25 that I've been here. And I think it's remarkable for, and I'm not old, really old, but I'm older, where I want to go out and support them in their ideas and the, and the things that they're looking to change. And also for me, it was for my young boys to say that, to be out, um, they more so were social distance, but to be able to be a part of a change. And that this is not just a time where we're here and we're clapping and we're saying, yeah, yeah, but really understanding the power of their own voice and the power of my voice. And so for me, although COVID is happening and, and there's a risk for exposure, it was a time for me to just say, okay, either you're going to sit in the house and be silent or you're going to go out and make your voice known, whatever those are. And also it was an opportunity for me to also talk to the young people about the importance of getting out and changing. So what I mean by that is getting registered to vote. So I've been part of really getting our young people registered to vote. Um, and really letting them have an understanding of how local politics work. I know we have the big election for presidential, but also some of these laws and policies that are in place are start at the local level. And if there wants to be some changes and reform, they need to understand who is in office. And we have the power to change that and shift that and also hold them accountable to that. And so those are kind of my reasoning for going out participating, even though I know that we are under these pandemics. Thank you. Um, can yeah. I add as well? Yeah. I have a very personal um, response to COVID-19. I lost my dad on March 27th. Um, his official cause of death was respiratory failure. And he, excuse me if I get emotional about this, it's still hard. Last weekend was just Father's Day and his birthday was last week. But my dad died because he couldn't breathe. And George Floyd died because he could not breathe. And it doesn't matter whether it was from a police officer's inadequacy, a doctor's inadequacy, black lives were lost at a disproportionate rate because the people who we depend on for help do not give it to us the same way they give it to others. And I said earlier, I study health and human biology in the social context of disease. I focus on race and immigrant status because I'm, the a daughter of two immigrants from Jamaica who, my dad came here with $80 in his pocket and he worked his butt off to get his daughter to go to an Ivy League school with no college education, no high school diploma. And for the same hospital where I was born to be the place where he died because doctors weren't believing him until my mom came in yelling that her husband couldn't breathe and demanding that he needed more oxygen and for me to not have been able to be there as a pre-medical student to advocate for him due to COVID-19 restrictions, it was a no-brainer for me. Like this protesting is a no-brainer for me because people are dying every day, every minute. And it is, when George Floyd died, my dad, he died all over again, for me, at least personally. And I, I wrote him a letter about it because I, I, I couldn't get the feelings out anyway. I just sat down and I said, Dad, you just died all over again. It doesn't matter that it was two months ago. And for me to truly just sit here in my home and think of the Black Lives Matter movement and what's going on is something separate from, it's the same thing. It's the same movement. Black Lives Matter everywhere, in the hospital, in the car, in the highway, on the road, everywhere. And for me to, I just, 
every night before I go to bed, I wonder if the doctor didn't believe him because he was black. Or I wonder if his diabetes was an, another factor contributing, his diabetes that went undiagnosed for many years because he was black. I wonder if his hypertension, which we're much more likely to face as black people, was the contributing factor that made it too much. I don't know. I don't know which one it is. My dad came here for better health care, for, better, for a better life, for better opportunity. And the very country that he picked up everything and left everything behind for the country that killed him. And I maintain that to this day. That's how I feel. I mean, it's three months out. I don't know how I'm going to feel in three years, but that's how I feel right now. So this isn't separate. We don't get to pick and choose whose life we, we protect and who we protect and when we're going to be careful and who we're going to care for. These protests happening right now are a matter of lives being lost tomorrow, yesterday, 200 years ago, 300 years ago, lives that are going to continue to be lost until we do something. And the amount of Black people dying because they can't breathe under the necks of police officers and in hospital bells, hospital beds, excuse me, as well, it doesn't matter where. We're dying because we can't breathe because we're being stifled by a system that doesn't care about us. That's the fact of the matter. That's, there's no better way to put it. I can sit here as a pre-medical student. I can tell you I believe in biomedicine. I can tell you I want to go to medical school. I can tell you I want to be a doctor. And I can also tell you that there are immense, immense issues in our healthcare system that I'm going to have to face and I'm going to have to reconcile with as a doctor. But I can also tell you that by marching, by getting out there, by spreading the word, you're not only marching for George Floyd, you're marching for my dad. You're marching for years and years and centuries worth of black people who just did not get the chance to take another breath because somebody else decided that their life didn't matter enough because of the color of their skin. And that's, that's it for me. I just like, that's all I can say. That's the only way I can understand it. Danessa, thank you for sharing your truth. Um, we are all, I think, express our condolences on the loss of your father. Um, and certainly the context connected to COVID-19, to your point, it, it's inextricable. It's inextricable. And it is this lived experience that we live each and every day that is often so invisible to the broader society, the, the double pandemic that we are living in has brought all of these issues right to the forefront. They are sta staring us in the face and calling us into action without a doubt, whether it be on the streets or on social media. Um, I just wanna say there are a couple of questions and um, Dr. Obar has been really great with responding with some specific ideas um, in the Q&A box. Um, but I do wanna call attention to there are a number of questions that um, sort of require us to center white people in the conversation in terms of what white folks should do and that sort of thing. And I really wanted to make sure that we kept the space for black voices this evening. But I do want to offer, and I think I see you, Godfrey, saying um, you want to jump in here. Um, oh, okay. Well, go ahead. Yeah. yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I, that's, it, that's exactly what I was actually going to bring up was how rigorous I think we have to be about um, making sure that white folks are at the center of this and that, 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 and for white people watching that, that they need to, for lack of better words, they need to sit down and shut up 
and I hate to say it to say it to make it uh, to make it feel adversarial, but I think there are a lot of people who are really on the right the right side of so many things. They believe in all the things they talk about, and I and and Vanessa, I just uh, am gutted by um, what 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 you you're going through, um, and I. And when people talk about healthcare, and they talk about universal healthcare, and they talk about all of those things, what the hell does that mean in the case of Danessa's father, or even my mother 30, 30 years ago, uh, who was ignored, right? I mean, it, 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 it but I think, but, you know, I think for, for a lot of white folks, particularly those who you would think would really be on the side of things, white progressives, really specifically, there's a missing piece that is really centered on themselves as opposed to really centered on like what like and brown folks are doing. Um, you know, so I just wanted to kind of just uh, that, that for us to be rigorous about like snatching that back and reclaiming that uh, that centering. Yeah, and and so I I don't want folks to think that I am ignoring them. I guess I kind of am um, because I think it it is important that we um, center the voices that we have here. What I will say is that Danessa actually shared in her initial comments, um, some really strong suggestions for how to get resources. And it is in fact, social media. Um, I, I would agree with her that I've seen as someone who does this work and has been spending much of my time in the last several weeks with organizations and companies, um, talking and helping them to navigate these conversations. Um, I have always been able to go to Instagram to some of my uh, favorite um, sites that I follow to get lots of information. So I do think that if you take a step, it's not very difficult to find um, many, many resources on anti-racism, on white privilege, on white rage, on white supremacy. All of those things actually are quite available. Um, you could simply do a Google search for resources to address my own white privilege and you will find a number of resources. So um, I don't want you to think I'm ignoring you, but I just don't want to lose the opportunity that we have here to really um, provide education and learning and an opportunity for us to reflect in the context of this discussion. Um, so we're, we're getting close to our time, um, but I do wanna make sure that we, as I said, that we touch upon the election, um, the upcoming election, which is important. And, and also to note that we do plan to do uh, more of these panels. Um, this is our first and it has been phenomenal thus far, powerful, impactful, real, and authentic. And we expect to be able to create that space um, at least two more times this summer. So please um, be on the lookout. If you registered for this session, um, you should receive information 
Um, but so before we close, I'd love to be able to talk a little bit about the election. And then I'd like to give each of you an opportunity to just share some final thoughts with the audience. So let's talk about the election um, first. Um, as we know, there have been or we are we have been in a space for um, it seems like an eternity um, where we've been caused to say it can't get any worse. It just can't get any worse. And yet it seems with every passing tweet to get worse. Um, the election is upon us. Aisha mentioned the importance of local elections, right? Because also we know where the, the mayors elect or select the police chiefs, right? And um, the, um, the, the judges and not the mayors, but you know, elected officials on the local level. Um, and so it, it's not that we should be discounting all levels of government. But let's talk a little bit about black and brown communities getting out the right to vote and this, this um, increase of voter suppression that we are seeing once again in very, very um, sort of um, secretive kinds of ways, you know, and from a historical perspective, we knew of, you know, the, the, the poll taxes and, um, you know, all kinds of tests that had to be taken. But now we're seeing a different kind of voter suppression. Um, let's talk about that for a little bit and then we'll go around and see what you all have to say to close up this evening. If I can uh, start, I think, and I, was, I, I think when I talk, I project really hard sometimes. So I, I, let me know if I'm not loud enough. Uh, I think that you need to be vigilant and Joelle, thank you very much for making the comment about voter suppression, which is real and it takes many different forms. We, there have been bipartisan investigations from the government into 2016 Russian meddling, which found that of all the demographic groups in the United States, the Russians concentrated more resources to discourage African-Americans from voting than any single demographic group. And that's partly because African-Americans overwhelmingly vote Democrat, and if they repress that vote, then this would be, of course, an advantage to Trump, who Putin apparently likes, and Trump likes Putin. And we find that the, the interests uh, have intersected between you know, folks who are often hostile to black people domestically and internationally and trying to discourage black people from voting. And one of the things that we see in 2016, which we didn't have obviously in the past, was the ability for people to pretend to be black people advocating for black people by telling black people to do certain things which are actually deleterious to black people, right? And saying, for example, that you should withhold your vote to demonstrate that you're not, you're mad at what Hillary Clinton said 30 years ago and you're not taking it anymore, right? So black people will demonstrate their power by not voting. And so many people, I have friends, there's a whole bunch of these ivory tower black folks, right? Especially who are, are, are about ideological purity and I appreciate that and that's all well and fine. But anyway, and many people have argued, not only should we withhold votes because the parties are flawed, or that we demonstrate our power by withholding it, or that uh, black people are better served by not voting because uh, our votes don't matter anyway and nothing changes. If our and I tell this to, to be very, very basic. If our votes didn't matter, then we would have had hundreds of years of federal, state, local efforts to prevent black people from voting in all sorts of horrible, inhumane ways. 
I mean, all the way from the machinations of literacy tests, of poll taxes, to actually uh, barring you from being involved in the primary altogether, blowing up churches and schools and killing people and dragging people in cars. And all these things, if it didn't matter, they could have sat back and spared themselves the time and all the kerosene and dynamite sticks that's investing, right? So this idea that somehow our votes don't matter, it seems patently absurd. And so I think that we need to be quite vigilant that every single case of voter suppression laws have occurred in Republican-controlled states. I know people like to think that, you know, oh, you know, whatever. But at the end of the day, we have to be quite clear that Donald Trump and the Republican Party in 2020 collectively is not operating the interests of Black folks if we measure our interests by having um, one uh, greater access to uh, resources and education, uh, healthcare. We talk about increasing uh, widening paths to college with Pell Grants, uh, raising minimum wage, all the sorts of things that are critical issues for the African American community. Republican Party collectively right now, by and large, stands against. And so I think that these, these are very important. Even when you think about the reforms most immediately uh, present in Congress about police reforms, the watered down reforms that the GOP has offered as opposed to Democrat reforms uh, are quite clear. You know, no one, Trump has no enforcement policies at all. None of these things, again, are what people are arguing in the streets and pushing for. So. I think it's quite clear that our votes matter and we look at the laws that have been passed across the country. Even simple things like um, the state of, and I always say the last thing right before I stop. So the last thing I'll say here is that uh, New York City. So uh, since Nixon declared the war on drugs in the early 1970s, about 15 million people have been arrested, right? Put in jail, prisons. And in New York City, hundreds of thousands of people were being arrested over the course of years from stopping frisk when they were found with little bits of marijuana on them. When in fact, in New York City, whites and blacks and Latinos are no more likely to smoke marijuana than any other, right? But 85% of the people arrested and for marijuana were black people. When de Blasio said, all of a sudden, this is non-arrestable defense, hundreds of thousands of people were not arrested, right? So literally, you have over 300,000 people that think that the were gone each year, just not arrested because laws uh, change, right, on a local level, and voting did that. It was, a, it was de Blasio, not... Uh, to do before him, or the guy before him, or the guy before him. But again, this is a testimony to how important it is that we show up in the polls. Absolutely. Aisha, will you? I'll just add that um, some people feel that in Connecticut, we don't have our own voter suppression just because of the way our state is designed. However, we just have to take a look at some of the things like mass incarceration that's right here in Connecticut as well, and really encouraging those who are coming out of prison that have paid their fines and no longer on probation, that they are eligible to vote. There are some people and some organizations that are out there telling them that they cannot, and that's a way of voter suppression right then and there. So it's really important for us to educate ourselves and really show that those who have been in prison and they've done what they needed to do and paid their, their dues to society, that they are not eligible to vote. And also additionally, being able to um, have, know where your polling location is, is very important because what happens sometimes in the is people get discouraged because they go to polling locations and realize those are not the polling locations they shouldn't be at, and then they get discouraged and leave. Also in our state of Connecticut, you do not have to have a photo, a photo ID. You don't. Some people are being turned away from that because of that. So we have to be mindful that voter suppression does still happen in the state of Connecticut. Most people feel like it's only in the South and not around here. However, there are, there are places in Connecticut will turn people away because they don't have a photo ID 
or something like that. There is an affidavit in the state of Connecticut where we can state our hand and say that we are who we are and they are eligible to vote. So just making sure that people know that in Connecticut, things do happen. Thank you, Aisha. Um, Danessa or Godfrey, who wants to go next? You can do your wrap up slash voter suppression comment. I know, Godfrey, I want you to, to speak the, the comment that you just responded in the um, chat. So, Danessa, why don't you go ahead? Um, okay, so I wrap up in my voter suppression. I first just want to encourage, if there are any college students in this, use your absentee ballots. It's important. Your vote matters. And another important decision, actually, my best friend, she goes to school in Atlanta, and she chooses, she chooses to vote in Georgia. And that's a decision that you have to make for yourself that you can think about, but it's definitely something to think about depending on what state your school is. So I really encourage all my college students, your absentee, it's not that hard. It's not that tedious. Just walk to the mailroom. I know it's that one thing. And a lot of times there are a lot of complications that I personally think are elements of voter suppression. I had to request a ballot four times for the 2018 midterm election freshman year but just keep fighting, keep getting it, and work with your town clerk. They really want you to be able to vote. Um, and my wrap up, I think my overall message that I would want for anyone who listened to this to hear is have these conversations with your children. Um, I went to a PWI, predominantly white institution for high school and for college, and I was the site of learning, the site of exchange for a lot of my white counterparts. My hair, was their side of learning, my skin, my experiences, and I did a lot of teaching, unpaid labor. Um, I did a lot of teaching, a lot of forgiving, and a lot of, I, I don't know how else to say it, but a lot of anger holding for other people. And that's just not fair. It's not fair to the black kids that your kids are gonna go to school with. Um, and it's not fair to the black kids who have to learn those things at an earlier age in order to be able to educate others. So I just really encourage any parents in here to have those conversations with their children. If you think your white child is too young to hear it, a black kid their age had to hear it. Um, and I really, really encourage you to push yourself in that direction. Teach. Godfrey? Hi, um, I, uh, yeah, I just, uh, 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 Dr. Akbar, I was like exactly what, what, I, what you were talking about is so, so important and it's the most important thing with this election and the important thing i think for people to realize i think both for us to realize as uh, black and brown folks and and for white people to understand is that like for us voting is an existential decision by that i mean when we go to vote there's like some other thing going on because we know somebody who paid a physical price for me being able to walk into that booth. We know that there was, that there, there, there people lost their lives or people's uh, children's uh, experiences were altered. There, we know that there's trauma there. We know that there's blood that was spilled there. Like we're thinking about that. And when we go into the voting, when we go into the voting booth, right when we go into the voting booth we're not only thinking about ourselves we're actually thinking about white people we're actually thinking about everybody because we're thinking in this nuanced way about like how is this going to go where am i what am i doing and, and and we are being strategic because our very lives 
depend on it, literally. And other people like us, their lives will depend on that. And I think that that's something that, that, that I think, you know, we don't, we don't sometimes think about it. The folks that, that Jeff was talking about, like, I think that, you know, they're forgetting that. Some folks who are in the academia and certainly white folks who are, you know, progressive or really left-leaning, they forget that. So when you say, oh, they're the same, when you say all of that stuff, you have to remember who is being affected by your vote. What is the consequence and who is going to pay? Because chances are you're not going to pay for that vote. Somebody else is. It's real talk. So Aisha and Jeff, you both spoke to voter suppression, but I didn't tell you that it was a combination with your final thought. So to be fair, I'll give you a final thought moment each. So I'll do mine quickly. I will say one of the biggest things is um, beware of your own microaggressions that you exhibit in any space. Um, and also continue, con continue to have these conversations. We are obviously talking about police brutality right now, but continue to have the conversations because it doesn't stop with police brutality. It can go into education, health disparities, and the list goes on housing and everything else. So make sure that this conversation continues to go. And then also it's really to continue to understand that we are, are humans, right? And although we, we have to put on different faces at different times to acquiesce to what's going on, and I am a true person of that, do understand that we have to deal with a lot of things that go on at the time. And so sometimes I don't wanna always explain everything. So to my white counterparts and my white friends out there, Sometimes we just want, don't want to continue to have the conversation with you. And it's not because we don't care. It's really because we have to continue to hide our own feelings so that we can um, not hurt yours at times. And so there are times where we just kind of keep it to ourselves and we will only want to talk to others who have experienced what we're experiencing. And it's not because we don't care. It's just sometimes we have to protect ourselves and we have to sometimes not take off our mask in front of you. But just just keep that in the back of your mind when you're trying to um, get more information. Don't forget to vote too. Yeah, vote. Death. Yeah, I'll keep mine short as well. I don't have much more to say. I, I really enjoyed the panel. Thought they were you know, great contributions from everyone. Really appreciated. Uh, great comments here, and I wish I had an answer for all the comments that came through. One comment that particularly resonated was uh, what were sorts of organizations that. Uh, or the greater Hartford area where people can be involved. And I, I, I'm, to be honest, I'm not plugged in like that. Uh, I've served on the boards for different organizations that do development work in the area, uh, but in terms of activism work um, and that kind of thing, I think it would be nice in some way on the website, we may have some resources available for people who like to be involved in different capacities. Uh, I know that people have different sort of interests and things that make them passionate. Uh, I have been involved in uh, very, very loose ways with some, uh, some reform people coming out of prison back into uh, Harford Communities That Care, which I've sit on the board for YMCA and these organizations, but it would be great if we could have a resource for people. I thoroughly appreciate folks' uh, interest to be involved and it, the, the sentiment here about 
like to be able to say what they want to say freely and not have to concern, be concerned about you know white people. I, I fully understand that. I'm actually one of these. Um, I, I believe that people should have whatever group where you need to have, whether it's sexuality or gender or race or whatever. I think it's great to have spaces where you have in-house, just straight up conversation, get a chance to vent, speak freely. I feel very, very strongly about that. I might not be, you know, my wife and her girlfriends want to get together and talk about some things that don't concern people with white chromosomes. I'm okay with that, right? I don't feel like I have to kind of insert myself in there. I also think that it's important that that uh, we have allies. I think that that's what we're all saying here. And all this stuff I just mentioned with the laws changed and the people taking the streets and taking out these monuments, uh, those things can't happen with just black people only out there. That, that This kind of stuff has to happen with the sort of critical uh, linkages and coalitions and allies we have with white, black, Asian, Latino, Native American, everybody, right? So uh, all those things, and you know, I'm so excited about the enthusiasm I see here. And again, I hope that this stuff continues. These conversations are excellent. Thank you. Thank you so much. And as I said, you know, sometimes at the end of a, a panel where you feel like there's just one more thing to say, that means that there's room and space for another panel. So let me thank all of you for um, your witness tonight, your willingness to tackle some of these very challenging and clearly heart-wrenching um, impactful issues that we face. And I hope though that, you know, to the points of all the panelists that this, this clearly gave you a window into the lived experiences of black folk. And, you know, the intent was not to say, you know, we're not answering the questions of white folk, but I do think that there were some questions that were sort of in the vein of, tell us what to do, tell us what to read, tell us how to learn. And I think that, and there were some comments as well that suggested, you know, well, we can guide you to some places. And I think we've suggested and we'll provide, um, I think Charter Cultural Center has said that they would provide um, on their website some resources. And as I mentioned, there are a number of resources that you can access simply if you Google anti-racism resources. Um, but I think that's that's sort of what we want to see, right? If if folks are ready to do the work, if you're if you are serious about being an ally and you're ready to do the work, then that means you roll up your sleeves and you start to do the work. Um, you know, you're a leader when you step out there without someone telling you what to do. If you are um, waiting for someone to tell you what to do, um, then you are not leading. And so we do want you to have those intentional conversations. Dr. Akbar mentioned to one of the, the questions that was asked with your friends. Go talk to your friends, call out your friends when they're saying things that are untrue or are racist. Um, lead them to the resources that we have provided, encourage them to attend the next panel. Um, those are all things that you can do where you can hear from um, black and brown voices. So thank you all for coming this evening. We appreciate you giving your time. Um, this has, is just the beginning of a journey. Um, as we say, this is not a moment, this is a movement. And we appreciate your willingness to stand with us as we navigate through this uncertain time. To all of our sponsors, um, all the organizations who came together to make this possible, we are appreciative of you. And again, to, to the wonderful collection of panelists, um, may God be with each and every one of you. Um, and we hope to see you all again. Thank you.